Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Anyone who was alive at the time seems to remember with great clarity where they were when they heard that John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, had been shot dead in Dallas. It's one of those extraordinary waypoints in US 20th century history. He'd been elected in late 1960 in a very close-run election. He was young, he was charismatic, he was the first Catholic President of the United States. He seemed to embody the idealism of a new generation of Americans. Americans that had grown up following the First World War, had served often during the Second World War, and had lived through one of the most extraordinary revolutions in household prosperity in the history of the world. America had launched itself into a position of global hegemony, extraordinary superpower status, backed up by revolutionary technology. Not least the nuclear technology, but also things like ballistic rockets that would see man, that would see humans reach the moon within a decade, also the beginnings of a computing revolution. He seemed like a new president from a new generation for a new era of history. On this day, the 22nd of November, 1963, he was shot dead. In this episode, I'm going to be taking you through a step-by-step account of the assassination. I'm also going to be interviewing Jefferson Morley. He's a Washington-based author and veteran journalist. He's one of the most knowledgeable authorities on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So it's a hybrid. It's a mixture of one of my explainers with an interview with a bit of a legend. If you're interested in Cold War history, we've got plenty available on History Hit TV. You just go there. It's like Netflix for history. All the back episodes, there's podcasts are there, all the audios there without any ads, but also hundreds of hours of documentaries are there on everything from the Stone Age to the Nuclear Age. It's the world's best history channel, folks, and there's more going up all the time. In the meantime, buckle up. Let's hear from Jefferson Morley and me as we take you through one of the most famous days in history. It's the autumn of 1963. JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and his advisers were preparing for the next presidential campaign. Although it hadn't been formally announced that he was going to seek renomination as the Democratic Party's presidential candidate, it was clear that JFK was going to run. At the end of September, he travelled west. He'd spoken nine different states in less than a week. And he used a trip to kind of rehearse talking points, talked about things like natural resources, conservation efforts, education, national security, and world peace. On November 21st, JFK and the First Lady departed for the two-day, five-city tour of Texas. The first stop was San Antonio, and JFK ended the day in Fort Worth. And then, of course, the big crowd outside the hotel this morning in Fort Worth where about 8,000 people were on hand 
to hear the president make a few remarks. The next day was the 22nd of November, 1963. At 6.30 in the morning, a young man, 24-year-old man called Lee Harvey Oswald, went to work. He was employed at the Texas Book Depository Building in Dallas. He was alongside his colleague, Buell Wesley Frazier. Oswald is carrying something long and tells Frazier they're curtain rods for his room. Oswald has a remarkable biography for someone so young. He'd been placed in juvenile detention at age 12. He was assessed as emotionally disturbed, having had a very disjointed family life. He attended 22 schools in his youth, and he joined the Marines at age 17. He was court-martialed twice. He was jailed. He defected to the Soviet Union, but he'd returned to the United States in 1962. Thirty miles east of Lee Harvey Oswald's place of work, President John F. Kennedy is at the Texas Hotel in Fort Worth. It's 7am. He's getting ready for his day. He's going to give two speeches and leave Fort Worth for Dallas and drive in a motorcade through the city. Kennedy has just picked up the Dallas Morning News. He sees an now infamous Black Border ad, similar to a newspaper death notice, which accuses him of treason. He makes his speeches, and then he and Jackie head to Dallas in Air Force One. Air Force One lands at Love Field in Dallas. JFK and First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy are met by the press and crowds. The president is up to the fence now, shaking hands with people, the president and his wife. This is great for the people and uh, makes the eggshells even thinner for the Secret Service, whose job it is to guard the man. 11.45 a.m. The motorcade. The Kennedys join Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife Nellie in an open air limousine. Vice President Lyndon Johnson and his wife ride in another limo nearby. In Fort Worth, the President specified that he wanted to be accessible to the people. He wants the bubble top off as much as possible and does not want Secret Service agents on the back of his limo. 11.50 a.m. Lee Harvey Oswald at the book depository. Multiple co-workers see Oswald on the first floor of the book depository eating lunch. Simultaneously, the motorcade leaves Love Field and begins the drive through Dallas. Noon, the motorcade heads through downtown Dallas, passing through crowds of around 150,000 people. 12.29 p.m. Dealey Plaza. The President's limo turns onto Elm Street. The President's car is now turning onto Elm Street and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. The first shot is fired. It misses the President. A fragment from the bullet or debris from the street hits a man called James Torg, who is watching the motorcade in Dealey Plaza. 12.30 p.m. Assassination. It, it it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. A bullet strikes the president in the back while he waves, causing Kennedy to go into what doctors call Thornburn's position. It's a common neurological response to spinal damage. Time, stand by just a moment, please. 
The third shot is fired. It hits the president on the back right side of his head, causing a portion of his skull behind his ear to blow out. There has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. The governor of Texas is also badly wounded. Mrs. Kennedy immediately climbs onto the back of the limousine. She later says she has no recollection of doing so. When she returned to her seat, she said repeatedly, They've killed my husband. I've his brains in my hand. Right after the third shot is fired, Sheriff Bill Decker orders Dallas police officers to the railroad tracks behind the fence on the grassy knoll. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the fateful day when JFK was shot in Dallas. More coming up after this. Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the fateful day when JFK was shot in Dallas. Jeff, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. So there's a scene of chaos. Uh, how how quickly after that third shot is fired does the limousine race off to a hospital? I- immediately. The limousine turns onto Elm Street. A series of shots ring out. Uh, Pre- Governor Connolly struck in the back. President Kennedy struck in the back. President Kennedy struck in the head. A bystander is struck by a missed shot. The Secret Service driver immediately takes the car to the nearest hospital, Parkland Hospital, with the press car in hot pursuit. They pull up at, 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 at Parkland, they've called ahead, the trauma team is ready. The orderlies take the president, alive but badly wounded, out, put him on a gurney and take him into trauma room one in Parkland Hospital. Governor Connolly, also wounded, is taken into trauma room two. In trauma room one, doctors converge and try and save Kennedy's life. 
He is still alive. He has a heartbeat, um, but he can't, he can't speak. And he suffered a massive wound in the back of his head. The press car follows, and Merriman Smith was in the press car. He was a veteran reporter for United Press International, followed the president wherever he went. He was a soldier. He recognized the sounds of the shots, and he was the first one to call in the story. He calls his editors in New York, says three shots were fired at the presidential motorcade in Dallas today. And by 12.30, 1 o'clock, that news is already beginning to hit the air. You know, radio announcers and TV announcers put that on the air. Shots were fired at the president's limousine. Dr. Robert McClellan was one of the doctors who examined and was trying to save Kennedy's life, one of the senior doctors on, on the scene. He stood at the head of the gurney and he observed Kennedy's head wound, which was so severe he knew that he was not going to survive. It was indeed a fatal shot and within half an hour his vital signs had ceased and he was dead. And that announcement went off at about one o'clock central time on November 22nd, 1963. So about 90 minutes later, Dallas police arrested a man, Lee Oswald, in, a, in the Texas uh, theater. He had been seen sneaking into the theater and they rushed in and arrested him and took him down. And, and he was charged with assassinating the president. Um, Oswald, a 24-year-old ex-Marine, denied that, denied it vociferously. He said, I didn't shoot anybody. He said it repeatedly. And he said, I'm a patsy. I'm a patsy, meaning he's the fall guy for somebody else. Okay. So this is a shocking event. The president is dead. The country's in shock uh, uh, that next day. Vice President Johnson is sworn in as president. And on Sunday morning, Oswald is taken from the Dallas jail where he's being held and questioned by the FBI and Dallas police and taken to a more secure jail on national TV. And as this happens, as Oswald is brought out, a man steps out of the crowd and shoots him and kills him. Uh, and that man was Jack Ruby, the owner of a Dallas nightclub and a man with aspirations to join organized crime. So you have the astonishing assassination of the president, followed 36 hours later by the assassination on live television of the supposed assassin. So a completely surreal set of events. I, I was going to say, also surreal, is, is Bob McNeil, the, the legendary news broadcaster who I grew up watching, uh, he, he was calling in, or he was looking for a phone box to call in the, the news, and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald walked past him, apparently, on his way out of the book depository. Crazy. Yes, yes. So, yeah, newsmen are calling in the story, what happened? And the president is killed on November 22nd around lunchtime, 1230. Oswald's arrested later that afternoon. Uh, he denies that he is involved in shooting the president. He's in, interrogated at length, although without a tape recording going. Um, we only have the notes of, of, those, of that interrogation. And the next day, on Sunday, November 24th, when he's taken out, he is shot dead himself. So the other important thing to understand about this chain of events is it was that afternoon, on the afternoon of November 24th, that the new president, Lyndon Johnson, and the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, communicated. And they decided what they were going to do about what had happened. And they both said the same thing. We need to get out information that this man, Oswald, acted alone. We want to cut off all speculation about his motives and his foreign contacts. This man acted alone. The president of the United States and the chief law enforcement officer of the United States decided before the president had been buried and before the investigation had really begun what conclusion they wanted. They wanted to find that this one man alone did it. 
And so the FBI did that. They came back three weeks later and said, this guy Oswald shot the president. We don't know why. Um, and then Ruby shot Oswald because he felt like it. So that wasn't a very satisfying uh, conclusion to anybody, much less to a country and a world grieving the loss of a, you know, a, a potentially great leader. And so President Johnson appointed the Warren Commission, headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren. And the idea, Johnson's idea was, the Dallas police would not investigate this murder. The FBI would not investigate this murder. Congress would not investigate this murder. Only this commission would do it. And he, he stacked the commission with Washington establishment figures. The chief prominent among them, the former director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. And so the FBI ratifies the lone gunman theory, and that's all it is, a theory, among many other theories. Um, and the Warren Commission starts to investigate. And what happens is the CIA pretends that they knew nothing about this guy, Lee Harvey Oswald, which was simply false. It was a cover story to hide the agency's continuing interest in Oswald from November 1959, when as a young serviceman, he defected to the Soviet Union, moved to the Soviet Union out of sympathy to communism. And for the next four years, the CIA monitored Oswald quite closely. That was, that was never shared with the JFK investigators. The Warren Commission came to the same conclusion that President Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover wanted, that this one man acted alone for no discernible reason. And this was the real problem with the Warren Commission report and with the whole official story. The, I don't even say story anymore. It's the official theory. It's no more credible and a lot less credible than other theories of Kennedy's assassination. But the official theory is this guy killed the president for no reason. And Jack Ruby came along and killed him because he felt like it. And there was no politics involved. There was, And that's what Johnson wanted. That put the thing to rest. At least it seemed to. The press came out and said, this Warren Commission, this is a wonderful finding. They've proven this beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, let's move on, was the general message of the government. Why do you think we get these, well, you call them conspiracy theories, these alternative explanations for what happened that day? The set of circumstances was surreal. And the fears of conspiracy were created by those circumstances, not, I might add, by conspiracy theorists. The first week after the assassination, there were no conspiracy theorists. There was only the official story that one man had shot the president for no reason. That was the story of the Dallas police. That was the story of the FBI. That was the story of the White House. That was the story of the CIA. But when pollsters went out and talked to the American people and they said, who do you think was responsible? Already two thirds of people who responded to two polls in November 1963 said, you know, more than one person was involved. So the strange, baffling circumstances of the crime and the execution of the chief suspect created this fear of conspiracy, this suspicion of conspiracy. It was not conspiracy theories. So that's the story that has come to us over the years and is still really unresolved, you know, 58 years later. Jeff, how would you characterize the Kennedy administration? What kind of president was he, Jeff? Who was Kennedy? You want to understand why he was killed. Kennedy was a popular liberal president. He was the youngest man ever elected U.S. president, the 35th president elected in 1960. He was a new style of politician. The modern era of featuring charismatic politicians, actors as politicians, Kennedy really inaugurated that era. 
He was a good-looking man. He was handsome. His wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, was very chic. He really had a star quality to him. So that was a striking thing about him. Politically, a liberal, but very cautious. No, not left-wing by any means. His policies on Cuba and Vietnam, though, gave him serious enemies within the U.S. national security community. Kennedy had declined to overthrow the government of Cuba, not once, but twice. And that was a prime goal of the CIA and the Pentagon in 1960. Fidel Castro had taken power in Cuba uh, and led his country on a kind of leftist revolution, completely uh, intolerable to the United States, which was long used to dominating Cuba and Latin America. And so they wanted to assassinate Castro and overthrow him. That became the goal of the CIA. And so in 1960, early 1961, President Kennedy had only been president for a few months, the CIA launched a invasion of Cuba, hoping that uh, this would spark a revolution that would overthrow Castro, who had only been in power for a year or two. The invasion failed, and Kennedy refused to support the invasion with air support, with U.S. planes. And the people who concocted this plan in the CIA and their allies among the Cubans opposed to Castro never forgave Kennedy for refusing to come to their aid. Kennedy, on the other hand, had been told this plan was going to work and he didn't need to do anything and the United States wouldn't need to intervene. Cuba was not a particularly important country to the United States, economically or strategically, so he refused to invade Cuba. And the Cuban exiles and the CIA officers felt bitterly betrayed. That feeling that feeling of betrayal that surrounded Kennedy continued a, a year later in October 1962 with the events known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1962, the Soviet Union installed nuclear missiles in Cuba to keep the U.S. from invading and overthrowing this government. It was a communist government. The Soviet Union supported it because part of the Socialist Brotherhood, and they wanted to deter the United States from overthrowing communism. So Cuba becomes this flashpoint in the Cold War. It's not an important country politically, it's an important country symbolically. Can the United States prevail or will communism prevail in Cuba? During the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy's generals said unanimously, invade, overthrow, destroy him, and we'll solve the Cuba problem forever. Kennedy didn't want to do that. And Kennedy feared, quite correctly, that if he invaded Cuba, the result might be a nuclear war. After all, the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons on the island. So Kennedy proceeded very carefully, and he tries to negotiate the withdrawal of the missiles. He doesn't want to destroy them militarily. He wants to withdraw them. And after two weeks of two terrifying weeks in which nuclear war seemed very close and, and probably was, Kennedy gets the Soviet Union to agree to withdraw the missiles. Well, that was very popular with the public. Kennedy shoots up in the polls at, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. For Kennedy, the experience of being close to nuclear war was educational. And he, in 1963, Kennedy really wants to wind down the Cold War. He does not want a nuclear war. He fears nuclear war. And so he lays off Cuba. He doesn't do anything to overthrow Castro. He's trying to withdraw from Vietnam, despite pressure from his generals to escalate there. He pursues a test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, a kind of more symbolic than real, but the first arms control agreement between the two superpowers, which are really at each other's throat and on a hair trigger. 
And Kennedy's trying to relax the Cold War throughout 1963. So he's a popular liberal president. Staying out of war in Cuba was very popular, and Kennedy was doing well in the polls in 1963. But it was also a time of political violence in America, and let's let's not forget that. In June 1963, Medgar Evers, the, the head of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was assassinated in Mississippi because he had been pressing for the end of Jim Crow, for the end of legal segregation. This was very controversial in the United States at the time. Legal segregation had been the law for a century. The civil rights movement, with the support of Kennedy and Johnson, you know, was demanding these rights, and the federal government was finally coming around to ensuring civil rights. Well, Evers was assassinated. In the fall of 1963, someone planted a bomb in a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and killed four little girls. Uh, African-American girls. Kennedy's living in a dangerous time, a time of political violence, and he's also made some enemies in the national security community. And in that context, that's when the assassination happens. The Kennedy has been killed supposedly by a communist, then the communist is killed. I mean, it's no surprise that people quickly rejected the Warren Commission and began to develop other ideas. President Johnson himself, appointed the Warren Commission, publicly endorsed its lone gunman finding. Privately, he never believed it. He never believed it. And he told, on three different times, he told people, Oswald might have been involved, but other people were involved too. Johnson was was quite sure of that. So you've been at the forefront of trying to find out more, and you've been you've been suing the CIA, you've been waiting for new documents to be released. Tell me, how's that struggle going? Well, you know, it's endless. I, I was I was I was in court with the CIA for, believe it or not, 16 years. I mean, I filed suit because I wanted to create a paper trail and hold them accountable for hiding records. And I managed to do that and I got some records. But this work requires infinite patience because they are an intelligence agency and they have quite strong powers of secrecy to this day. And so the documents that people like me want to see to explain this baffling series of events are still off limits to the public. You know, I think that we have learned a tremendous amount about the events of 1963 in the last 20 years. After Oliver Stone's movie, the US government was shamed into releasing most of its records about Kennedy's assassination. Those records had been secret for 30 years. And when Oliver Stone made a, a, a movie about the assassination and it made a big deal about these secret records, they finally started to come into the public record. And we've learned a lot since then. And there's a couple of things that, that, that we know now that we didn't know then. The first was what I mentioned before. The, the story that the CIA didn't know anything about this guy, Lee Oswald, that was a bald-faced lie. They knew a lot about him. They had been following him closely for four years. That's one thing. A second thing that came out in 1997 was a secret Pentagon plan to provoke a war with Cuba. This was a war that the generals approved in 1963, the generals who opposed Kennedy's more liberal foreign policy. And the plan was to stage a spectacular crime in the United States and arrange for the blame to fall on Cuba. It's a black operation in, in intelligence parlance. You take an action and you make sure that your enemy is blamed for it. And that's the way, that's how you, you know, debilitate and destroy your enemy. And the CIA is very involved in this plan. The CIA's role is to produce the evidence, quote unquote, 
that Castro was involved in some terrible crime. And these planners who were working for the Pentagon had very specific scenarios. One was hijacking a plane, faking a hijacking of a plane. Another was a, a, a terror attack in Washington or Miami. A third was to attack a boatload of Cuban refugees. And the United States would do this, and then they'd blame Castro for it and create the evidence to show that Castro was involved. And then the United States could say, look, this guy's a threat to international peace. He's acting beyond the bounds of civilized nations. We are justified in overthrowing him. That's how the Pentagon wanted to solve the Cuba problem in 1963. Nobody knew about this plan. No, no assassination investigators were ever told about this plan. And for obvious reasons, because there was a spectacular attack on an American target on November 22nd, and CIA assets immediately set out to lay the blame on Cuba. So Operation Northwoods, as this plan was known, serves as kind of a template for what happened in Dallas on November 22nd. So what we're looking for today, the rest of the Operation Northwoods documents. We have a bunch of them, but there's there are still portions of those that are classified. We want to see the records of CIA personnel who knew about Oswald before the assassination to explore the possibility that he was manipulated and that he was what he said he was, a patsy. So that's where things stand on the 58th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. President Biden last month issued an order late on a Friday night and said, the CIA is not going to release any of its JFK records this month as they were required by law, but they have until December 2022. So this was the second time in four years that the CIA has blown a legal deadline to release all of its JFK records. So, you know, the CIA is delaying and that's what they've done for the last 58 years. They've, they've engaged in deception, deceit, delay when it comes to explaining the events that led to the, the assassination of the president. You know, will we ever learn the story? You know, I think we will. And, you know, I'm hoping that all the records will come out and we'll have a better explanation of why the president was killed. Right now, the official story that this guy came out of nowhere and shot the president, that's false. He didn't come out of nowhere. He was watched by the CIA for four years. They watched him right into Dallas. So what's the explanation for that? We still don't have a good explanation. That's where things stand today. Jeff, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed. This is the story that never ends. It's fascinating, eh? Yes, it is. Well, Jeff, Thank you very much. We'll come back to you when they release those documents. If they do. Thank you. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've made the end of the episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.